This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast Podcast, the official podcast of the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association. I'm Seth Isaacson. I'm the lead historian and one of the describers at Rock Island Auction Company in Rock Island, Illinois. Um, we're the world's biggest firearms auction. Uh, last year, we did $91.7 million in sales, primarily in firearms. Um, and at Rock Island, I work predominantly with antique firearms, especially muzzleloaders. That's what I'm really into. Did you get the Did you get the choice to work primarily with muzzleloaders, or was that something where you showed like some interest in, and people higher up said, "Hey, you know, you you're, you like this stuff. We're going to put you on it and and get you talking about it." Yeah, it was more of that. When I interviewed back in let's see, would have been the spring of 2014, um, I came in and I had an interview with Lawrence Thompson, our vice president of catalog production. I also sat down with Kevin Hogan, our current president of the company. Um, and basically they were, you know, figuring out what I was into, what I already knew coming in to Rock Island Auction Company. And at that time, most of my knowledge dealt with fur trade guns. That was what I knew the best. Okay. Um, in graduate school, I studied the North American fur trade primarily for my research. And we just happened to have a ton of fur trade guns in the building at the time. Oh, Wow. And so Lawrence was like, I think we've got something you'd be interested in. And he kind of pulled me out and showed me this rack of mostly Northwest trade guns, but there were some like Henry um, Indian rifles mm-hmm. and or some Lehman Indian rifles out there as well. And, you know, I was like, oh, hey, that's the Hudson Bay Company one. And this one, was, I kind of knew them right away. And so they were like, oh, okay, we've, you know, this guy might uh, be an asset kind of thing, which I was very upfront with them. I was like, I know this stuff, but I'm going to need to learn about the other stuff, which is something they've always been really good about here i mean there's no way you can know everything coming in the door i mean you know we deal with you know hundred thousand not muzzleloaders hundred thousand firearms or more a year i mean i don't know the current numbers because it keeps growing every single year um and since i've been here i've probably written descriptions of i don't know thirty thousand guns wow Uh, so yeah, there's no way you can know all of that (laughs) but there's also no way to work with that many firearms and not be just constantly learning. Mm-hmm. So every year that I've been here, you know, that knowledge base has just grown um, and being able to work with the other guys on our describers team, which are all really all, a bunch of really awesome guys. Um, several of the other describers also have backgrounds in history. Um, we've got a couple of guys that are older guys that have, you know, been collecting guns longer than I've been alive. Mm-hmm. So like, all just work together. And then each of us kind of has our own niche and they definitely play to our strengths. You know, if we have a guy that's more into shotguns, they'll kind of send more of the shotguns his way. If there's, right. you know, yeah, I'm mostly into the muzzle loaders. They definitely send me more muzzle loaders than anybody else. Um, and they kind of, you know, work around that because obviously we want to do the best we can do for our mm-hmm. clients. And if you've got a passion for a particular item, 
you're the person to work on it. That's really cool. I think everybody kind of knows the Rock Island Auction Company name and, and sees the beautiful catalogs and the pictures and things. It's neat to get a little insight there that the people that are responsible for showing it to us out here that love guns and muzzleloaders and all this neat stuff are, are passionate about it too. Oh yeah, we definitely, I mean, the main group of us that are on what we call describers row, we're kind of all in a, a nice line in the warehouse working on guns all day. I mean, we're all very passionate about the the stuff we work with. You know, we all get really excited when something comes in the door that's you know out of the ordinary or, you know, even some of the like, you know, what you might consider relatively run-of-the-mill guns, but you might get a really nice example, like a, you know, a U.S. Model 1836 lock pistol is by no means super rare, mm-hmm. but to get one that is, like, pristine is really rare. So, you know, yeah. if I see one of us, like, running over to show one of, one of the other covers, hey, check this one out, look how nice it is, you know? Um, we're all, we all get really excited about some of this stuff. I mean, there's no way not to. Yeah. Yeah, holding history is always super cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have... If you'd told me when I was in graduate school that I'd be handling and sometimes even, you know, disassembling and whatnot, some of the stuff I work with now, I wouldn't have believed you. Oh, I bet. So have you always been a history lover then, or is it something that came in later in life, you know, college or school that you had an interest in? So I grew up in like a really small town in Northern Illinois. Uh, it's actually technically not even a town. It's a you know small village of like 500 to 600 people. Mm-hmm. The house I grew up in is a Victorian home that was one of the earlier houses built in the town. Um, so I kind of grew up in an old house, which kind of just, you know, so history was kind of always around me in that regard. Um, my parents kept like the original oak floors of the house, you know, oh, a lot yeah. of the original, you know, the arched doorways and stuff that, you know, were common in that era are all still in the house. So like I was kind of always around it in that regard. And then my parents also had some antiques and stuff a little bit. Um, and then my grandfather on my mother's side, um, he built a like 1936 Ford pickup when I was a little kid. Um, I think it was actually, he actually started it before I was born, but he finished it when I was like real little. Mm. Uh, and I spent like a ton of weekends growing up just riding around in that truck with my grandfather and going to car shows and whatnot. So I kind of got into old things because I was into old cars. Right. Uh, and never really even thought about it. To me, it was just kind of normal to be into that stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I kind of thought about it more and realized, you know, most of my friends weren't into old things like I was. <laughs> uh, my first job was actually like tending to the grounds of the Geneland Chapel and its cemetery in Andover, Illinois. And that's like a historic, uh, national historic site. And there's like graves from uh, a whole bunch of settlers that died in a cholera epidemic in the 1850s are buried there. There's oh, wow. several War of 1812 veterans that are buried there, which is when I was high school, I thought that was kind of strange because I was thinking, like, War of 1812, and they're in Illinois. Like, yeah. Really Illinois is having been settled yet, but obviously they came here after the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that regard, I just kind of grew up around that kind of stuff, and I was always interested in it. And then when I got into like high school and whatnot, that was uh, basically I was really good at biology and I was really good at history. And when I got to college, I was kind of trying to figure out which direction I wanted to go. And I'm not great with math. So I went with <laughs> history because I really honestly could go absolutely either way. I still absolutely love, you know, wildlife and um, the outdoors and yeah. science in general, but I also have an absolute passion for history and kind of seeing 
seeing how the past kind of shapes where we are today and kind of thinking about learning the lessons of the past and how that can help us going forward. I think that's a real common vein for a lot of people that are interested in history. It's, it's, I think, especially for somebody like me early on, you know, like the neat thing about, um, you know, having grown up with muzzleloaders, seeing how that changed things and then the wars and everything. But then I think as we get older, there's a lot of interest in just the day-to-day life and how things were done just just day to day, you know, it's not the bloody triumphant, you know, battles and things, but it's just the normal stuff that I think keeps bringing us back. And we keep uncovering neat little tidbits here and there. Oh yeah. Like the regular people of history or in the regular day to day life stuff, even that is just absolutely fascinating. I think a lot of people skip it by, but I feel like a lot of people in the muzzleloading community, I think especially because it gets tied to historical reenacting often, mm-hmm. um, they seem to really appreciate like, you know, all the finer details of how different life used to be. And yet also how some of those things kind of do remain with us today. Yeah. And you might not, you might not always think about it, but you know, there's lots of things that carry forward. Like what are some examples? And if you have any off the top of your head, I'm curious. You would ask that. No, I'm struggling. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, mean, I think, uh, so like, especially like when you look at like cultural history and you think about like ideas that have been part of like American culture, since mm-hmm. the colonial era that are still very much part of the way we think about the world today that are very different than a lot of other places in the world. I mean, you know, I guess in the last year or so we had a little bit of political unrest in terms of an election, mm-hmm. but you know, we're very exceptional in the sense that after our revolution, we've had a peaceful transition of power basically every single time, except for the civil war. Yeah. Uh, which is not normal no. anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of other Western nations are now very stable and have, you know, stable democracies. But that, in human history, that's not normal. And I think as Americans, we look at it like that's the way it's supposed to be and that's the way it's been here because that's how it has been here for a very long time. And that's just part of our communal psyche, I guess. Yeah. See, that's something I, uh, that's why I wanted to ask. I figured you'd have something that I didn't really even consider. I mean, I was looking at it on, uh, you know, just the self-reliance, the kind of federalism, the Jeffersonian idea of small farmers and things and independence. But uh, that's a really good point that there's a lot uh, in that we expect that the rest of the world didn't really, or hasn't really, you know, been used to like we have. Yeah. I think the self-reliance and, you know, our system of government and things you were hitting on definitely are part of that overall, you know, kind of American culture that's been pretty stable. You know, when we, when you study history, one of the main things we talk about is continuity and change. And some of those are threads that have been basically continuous since settlers first arrived here. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, born out of necessity in part, when you're talking about the first settlers here, they had to be independent. There was nobody to rely on. Um, But then, you know, throughout American history, until, you know, what, 1890, you've always had a frontier, and there's always been a portion of the American populace that is striking it out basically on their own, maybe as a community, maybe as a small community or a small group, but compared to other parts of the world, you know, they're basically on their own trying to make a new life in the wilderness. That's something that we, you know, initially lived for generations. That's how many Americans survived mm-hmm. but then it's also now ever since then it's just been part of our culture you know you can think all the movies and the books and i mean even a lot of muzzleloading culture is in part based on the idea of you know what frontier life was like it's very romanticized 
And I think now it's it maybe even more romanticized than ever before, as so many of us try to get some of that escapism out of it, of, of traveling back in time and going out and sitting in the woods for a little while and just being at peace. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've been surprised about the more I've learned about the broader muzzleloading community is that in my head, I kind of just assumed initially, I think naively that like, oh, you know, most people that are into muzzleloading are probably rural folk um, who, you know, just grew up out in the woods and they just kind of kept that life going because that's mm-hmm. kind of been some degree my story. But when you look into it, you know, some of them, some of the guys that are even really talented, you know, muzzleloading builders and whatnot live in like metropolitan areas. Like, yeah. <laughs> they have to leave the city to get out in the woods, which I think is something that's important for us as human beings to do. To kind of get yeah. out and get in touch with the natural world um, because that's, you know, what we're, we're meant to be that way. Yeah. We've been that way longer uh, than we've been, you know, uh, stacked on top of each other, so to speak. Yeah, and I can't stand to live in a city, so... <laughs> I'm, right, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, living somewhere like New York City and having that many people constantly crowded around you. I don't know how Which, people for do some people, that's For some people, they love it. I mean, some people, that's yeah, that's where they feel thrilled and excited, but I'd much rather be, you know, in a canoe going down a river in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So what what do you do... With your muzzleloaders, I guess I'm assuming that you have some muzzleloaders in kind of your own personal collection, but are they uh, on display or are you out hunting or fishing, you know, getting out with them or what do you do with them and, and what do you have? Um, well, let's see. The short way to put it is I've, from working at Rock Island, I've got expensive tastes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've got two small children, so I'm mm. also pretty cheap. So yep. my collection is not very big. Uh, <laughs> I've got, you know, several more modern guns that are kind of family heirlooms that are um, kind of important to me just because they've been passed down through the family. Like yeah. I've got a, an old Page Lewis 22 that is probably worth, you know, $75 realistically, but it's been the first firearm that, like, I think pretty much every generation of my family since the Isaacsons first came over in the 1880s, um, obviously the guns later than that, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the guy that bought it supposedly the first family member that brought it over was one of the guys that came over initially and he bought it later in life. And then like my grandfather, my father, I bought my dad's brothers, myself, and probably one day my son, that'll be the first gun they've ever fired. So That's it's worth cool. nothing, but it's got a lot of personal value. Yeah. Uh, which I think we run into a lot when you talk about collecting. A lot of people have a gun like that that's just it's personal. It's not about, you know, the big ticket item. It's just something that you feel a personal connection to. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of muzzle loaders, I've got a, um, a John Kreider half-stock percussion rifle that I purchased a little while back. Um, it's an antique from like roughly 1840, probably. Um, that's actually what I've been shooting the most lately. Oh, really? Yeah, it's got a pretty nice bore on it. Um, I'm not an exceptional shot to begin with, so it, it's plenty good for me. If I can hit a milk jug at, you know, 75 yards, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. Uh, but it shoots great. Um, it works well. I actually bought it off of an NMLA or NMLRA member. Um, it actually came through Rock Island a few years ago as part of like a group lot. Okay. Sometimes our sporting collector sales will have, you know, say three mother loaders in one lot. It was one of those kind of lots back then. And, I found out the guy had it and he contacted me and was like, Hey, you know, you might actually be familiar with this 
particular hmm. one that I'm selling, and I was like, yeah, have you have it. That's, uh, <laughs> that's my like main one that I've been shooting. I've also got a um, like just a Peter Sully Kentucky pistol that we picked up used that I've been kind of tinkering with and modifying a little bit. I've got some more traditional sights actually on order from Track of the Wolf that should be coming in sometime this week that I hope to update on it. Cool. Uh, and then like my one of my coworkers here, Brian Beck, uh, one of the other describers, he uh, recently finished a Kibler kit. Nice. Kibler Colonial kit. He actually did a really, really good job at it. Uh, looks really nice. Um, so we've been shooting that when we go out and shoot. And then my good buddy Matt, another describer here, um, he's got an Austin and Halleck uh, mountain rifle that he shoots. So between the group of us, we've got several muzzleloaders that we all kind of get out together and shoot and let everybody kind of share. And yeah. Some of our friends and coworkers that don't have muzzleloaders, you know, we have, we've introduced them using our guns. Um, I think I've yet to hand somebody a muzzleloader and let them shoot it and them not, you know, instantly be kind of interested in what it's all about. Right. It's so foreign to a lot of people, even that are uh, used to shooting in general, you know, a lot of modern things. It's so different. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of our guys, uh, kind of worked here is like a huge Mauser collector. That's like his big thing. Mm-hmm. He's got like all kinds of Mausers back to antique Mausers through like the world war two Mausers. And then he had never shot a muzzleloader before. And we let him shoot. I think we should let him shoot Brian's Kibler kit first. And he was, I mean, just the biggest grin on his face. And that was, you know, something that if you'd asked him about outside of that day, he probably wouldn't have been that into muzzleloaders, but you know, you get, you put it in his hands and as soon as you, you know, make a gun shoot with a piece of rock, yeah. Excited. <laughs> yep. Well, and you got that fireball going off, you know, right next to your face. I mean, it doesn't get any cooler than that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of drifts back, depending on the way the wind's going towards yep. you, and you kind of smell it and look forward, and hopefully you hit the target. And you know, it's all it's a whole experience. Yeah. Uh, mine are, and mine aren't currently on display or anything. I have them in a, a cabinet at, at the house. Um, I really like the the John Kreider rifle. It's got a lot of like, it's a half stock rifle, but it's got a lot of kind of traditional Kentucky rifle feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's got a brass patch box and the patch box and most of the furniture all has like classic scroll engraving. So it's got a real nice look to it. If I have a, a spot in the future to hang it somewhere, I might put it up on display in the house. Yeah. Just so I can look at it more. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I find myself doing is I'll get, uh, I'll get some things out of the safe to take some pictures or something. And then I'll just kind of leave them on like an end table or something for about a week, just because I like looking at them. <laughs> so you, I'm sure you've handled some fantastic pieces, but what are some of your favorite muzzleloaders that you've handled that have gone through the Rock Island auction? Ooh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, Let's see. Let me think. Well, coming up, um, so we've got an auction May 14th through the 16th. It's our next premiere sale. It's one of our next like high-end sale. Mm-hmm. Um, the the big ticket item in that in that sale are actually Alexander Hamilton's Revolutionary War pistols. I've seen the stuff on that. Yeah. So by far, there's just no way to beat that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I have to put those at the top of the list. They're by far you know, the most historic muzzleloaders I've dealt with since I worked here. And I've dealt with a lot of really nice muzzleloaders through Rock Island. I've been really fortunate that I've got to work with a really lot of cool stuff. Um, but those pistols have to be, you know, the very top. They're going to, I think the estimate is something like $1 to $3.5 million. Jeez. They very easily could go well beyond that, I personally think. And I 
seeing a reason why they shouldn't go beyond that, given how important they are. Yeah. Um, so they could set, you know, a new world record both for the most expensive muzzleloaders ever sold, the most expensive firearm ever sold, um, which we already have a record for that through Rock Island. Oh, wow. For a walk, uh, we sold a walker, I want to say a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called the Danish Sea Caption Walker. It sold for like a little over $1.8 million. Wow. So if these sell for, you know, take that as a single firearm, but if these, this pair sells for, you know, more than, more than, you know, $3.5 million roughly, they'll be both the most expensive muzzleloaders ever sold publicly and the most expensive individual firearms sold if you divide them, you know, between the two. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to me, they should sell for more of that. And me, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm really into muzzleloaders. I'm into right. American history. But, you know, when you think about, when you think about what they are, um, I just, I see no reason why they shouldn't go absolutely nuts. The most comparable thing I could think of is several years back, Christie's sold some really fancy Boutte pistols that were presented to um, Simone Boulevard, I believe. Um, and I think they sold for $1.8 million. And that was like a world record at the time. Hmm. And I mean, these are, those are awesome, obviously, but I, right. I, I mean, these are so much better. And you consider, you know, baseball cards sell for millions. Why would Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> fathers of this country, why would his pistols not sell for, you know, $20 million? Like, yeah. Who knows? I mean, uh, if I was in any way the in the same league as who I imagine the buyers are for something like that, $3 million just seems a little cheap. Um, just <laughs> as cool as I can imagine those yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, you consider like, you know, paintings, $3.5 million is not a lot of money for a really high-end painting. Right. And these pistols, I mean, they're really, really, really nice. They're relatively plain, which I think is, like, actually perfectly fitting. Um, they're English pistols that were made in around the 1760s, like roughly around the French and Indian War era, maybe a little mm-hmm. earlier. Okay. Uh, and they were actually owned by Philip Schuyler, which was Hamilton's father-in-law. He owned them first. He was one of the leading generals early in the revolution. Hamilton came up from being basically nobody. Um, he was like a, a bastard son born in the Caribbean. His mom died when he was young. I believe he was taken in by his cousin who then killed himself. So, I mean, like he had a really, really rough start in life. Mm-hmm. Came to the Northern colonies, went to King's College. The war broke out. And then like he joined up and made a name for himself, and then Washington brought him onto his staff. So, like, when you consider that he, he came from nothing all the way to being on, like, the staff of George Washington. Yeah. Being one of his closest aides de camp. And so, like, the Schuyler family was really wealthy. And then you've got Hamilton that came up from pretty much nothing, but then he's a really big up-and-comer in the colonies. You know, he's got a, you know, a reputation by then from being on – on Washington's staff, and then his father-in-law gave him this pistol. Hmm. And then it stayed in Hamilton's family all the way until, I believe, seven, or 1942, I want to say, is when it was sold. Really? That's very. That's um, pretty recent, relatively. Yeah, they stayed in the family a long time, and they've got documentation from that point forward, showing huh. that they've been in the family ever since, or that they were in the family to that point, and then we, mm-hmm. we know who owned them since then, so it's like verifiable that they go back that far. Um, and they're in really good shape. You know, a lot of Revolutionary War guns are pretty rough. Yeah. 
can be kind of cool in its own right. I mean, I, I don't mind seeing like a Charlottesville that's got a lot of battle scars. That's, that's history too. Yeah. But uh, the Hamilton pistols are in good shape. They've got nice carving. The, the, the little bit of embellishment that they do have on them is really clean. Um, the escutcheons on the wrist have, you know, AH just kind of simply inscribed on them. No big deal. You know, if you, <laughs> if you didn't have the provenance, you wouldn't immediately jump to their Alexander Hamilton's pistols. Right. Uh, but yeah, when I was told they were coming into the building, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> so, so how do those arrive? Is it by like limousine or armored car or am I giving too much grandeur to this? <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised. I actually don't know how those came in the building specifically, but I do know that, you know, a lot of stuff just walks in the door. Like we have people that, you know, they might even have an appointment. They might just show up and be like, Hey, I want you to look at this. Wow. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know, exceptional stuff. I know one day I was sitting at my desk writing descriptions for one of our sporting collector sales, which is kind of like the beginner collectibles, um, a little more affordable stuff. Um, a lot of good sporting guns and stuff like that. A lot of modern muzzle loaders and contemporary muzzle loaders are in that kind of sale. Okay. Um, but not the stuff I'm doing a lot of historical research on by any means. That'd be the stuff I'm just kind of, you know, putting in the system. What, what is this gun? How much is it worth? What's the condition? That kind of thing. So, you know, you're in a different mindset when you're working on something like that. Yeah. And they bring over our um, acquisitions team, brought over this revolver, and they were like, hey, uh, could you take a look at this and tell us what you think about it? And I'm like looking at it, and I'm like, that's a Griswold and Gunnison. <laughs> it's a real one. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think it sold for thirty grand or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it ended up selling for, but uh, stuff comes in like that where it just kind of walks through the door. Um, a lot of the really big stuff, you know, there's negotiations with our team and stuff, stuff like that in advance where they want to know, you know, what we're going to do with it and stuff like that, okay. which our acquisition team is awesome. It's a completely different part of the business. So I can't actually really speak to what, how they do it all. Right. But, you know, they meet, meet with people, see what they have. They'll give them, they'll work with our specialists and whatnot to kind of give them an idea of what stuff's worth, what we think it's going to sell for at auction and we'll work on it from there. Um, we also pick stuff up at gun shows, you know, especially pre pandemic, we, we're at a lot of gun shows and we're getting back into that now that people are getting vaccinated and things are, things are getting going again now that we actually yeah. can get to shows. Um, yeah, we could pick up, you know, a few hundred guns at just one show sometimes. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it comes in all kinds of different ways. People show up at our auctions and they're like, Hey, I'm here to buy some stuff, but I also brought, you know, some of the stuff I'm kind of moving out of my collection to make room for something else or to free up funds. Um, we get a lot of estates, mm. you know, where some, a major collector might pass on and his family either, isn't interested in the stuff or maybe they only want to keep some of it. Right. Um, I mean, there's all kind of, there's as, as many stories to go with how stuff comes in the door probably <laughs> as the stories that go with all the guns we get. So, right. To jump back to the Hamilton pistols really quick. Um, I have two questions. One is, did you get to handle them and, you know, see what they were like? Were, did, were you looking at any internals or anything? Not to get into like personal details of, of customers, but like what kind of person or organization um, buys something like that? Is that museums? Is that private collectors? And and just kind of interested in some insight there. Um, I did handle them personally. I did not disassemble them. <laughs> uh, we do disassemble stuff when necessary. Um, it's obviously going to be handled on a on a very careful basis if we're going to take something apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to take something apart if it if it looks like it could be a risk to the item. Um, something like these pistols that are worth that much and there's not really a need to take them apart, we're not going to take them apart. Right. 
if you've got something like a Colt 51 Navy that comes apart really easily and you can check, you know, the grip serial number by taking it apart, we'll take it apart, but we'll take it apart very carefully. Um, same thing with like, you know, Lepage dueling pistols. A lot of times the markings are actually on the bottom of the barrel. Okay. We might take it apart, but if we do, we're going to be very careful. And if it doesn't look like it's going to come apart easily, we're just not going to touch it because we're not going to risk damaging something. Yeah. Um, it's just not worth it, obviously. I mean, one, you destroy the value if you damage the gun. You don't mm-hmm. want to damage the gun. And also, you know, the marking's not that important. Um, so we're going to handle anything like that on a very professional case-by-case basis. Um, so the Hamiltons know it's not take them apart whatsoever. <laughs> The most taking apart they did was I, you know, removed carefully the the ramrod to look in the ramrod channel and check things out, um, and everything else was just kind of a careful external observation. Um, wearing nitrile gloves to keep, you know, finger oils and stuff like that off of them so that I right. didn't risk anything on them that way. Uh, my, my desk was extra clean that day. And <laughs> <laughs> very, very uh, nervous to be handling them, but also just super excited. Um, in terms of the owner, obviously I can't say who owns them now. Um, a lot of that stuff is just private collectors. Um, obviously when you're talking about guns that are worth millions, a lot of times they're very wealthy, sometimes well-known people. Um, sometimes they're people you wouldn't expect. Um, and surprisingly rarely are they actually institutions. Um, Really? They will, you, we will get stuff occasionally where that it will go to an institution but um, more often than not, when you look at like the really high-end stuff that's in, like, say, the Met, a lot of that stuff is actually donated by collectors, or it might be sold by, to collectors, but I don't believe very many museums do that a whole lot anymore. Okay. Um, I'm not really in that, that field, so I don't really know exactly how it goes, but I know places like the Smithsonian really aren't acquiring things themselves much anymore. Um, so I know we, we've... There's like the Gerald Clas collection, which isn't muzzleloaders really. He did have some really high-end exhibition um, percussion target and, and um, dueling style pistols from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of his stuff was in the Met on display. Okay. And some of it came to us af- after he died to be sold. And some of the stuff he either bequeathed to them or sold to them. I'm not sure of the details on that, but I know some of his guns still remain in the Met. Um so it kind of just depends. I would, you know, I would really like to see the Hamilton pistols do something like go out and be on public display. But at the same time, sometimes a private collector is actually the best person to keep something this important safe. That's what I've heard. Um, museums generally do a good job, of course, but there's, you know, things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if an individual has, you know, millions of dollars wrapped up in something, they're going to make sure it gets taken care of. <laughs> right. Like, it's a different story for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I I was really really surprised when they came when I saw that they were going to be here and was told they were going to be here and that I was going to get to work on them. I was, you know, it pretty much made my year and it was just you know the year was kind of just getting going. So yeah, it's kind of a I imagine a, a once in a lifetime possibly. I mean where where you're at, you know, you could be handling Lord only knows what you know next week, but <laughs> that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah, they very well could disappear from, you know, the public transactions permanently. I mean, they could end up going into a museum and being institutionalized and never be sold again. Um, they could go into somebody's family collection and be passed down for generations and never be sold again. A lot of the really good stuff, you know, people hold on to. Yeah. So, 
you know, if you're a buyer for this kind of stuff, you really do have to, you know, set your sights high when you, I mean, if this is the kind of thing you want, you better go for it while you get the opportunity. Yeah. So that's number one on the list for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Our next sale, I think, has something like 81 flintlock lots alone. That's not including, like, you know, we also got a bunch of percussion guns and whatnot, too. Um, We got a really nice collection of Kentucky rifles and pistols in the sale. Um, I'm trying to think of what my favorites are of those. We've got the, um, are you familiar with the running deer rifle? Yes, yeah, I looked at the picture of that um, yesterday. Yeah, I think our, our social media team put out some cool pictures of it. And our photographers did some awesome layout shots with some like antique stuff to make it look, you know, kind of just ooze history. And that gun is like one of the folksiest, coolest Kentucky rifles I've had the chance to work with in a long time. Um, so that one, that one's really cool. That's got to be in, I, I don't think I could make a top 10 list. <laughs> right. But all the things I'm thinking of right now, that one's, that one's definitely in there. But that gun's really cool. It's really nice, really clean embellishment, but it's not like over the top embellishment. It's just, like kind of clean and classy, just kind of a classic Kentucky rifle in that regard. But then it's got this inlaid running deer on the cheek piece side and some like wire inlays and some little pin inlays. Like it just looks really cool. It looks kind of like screams, you know, early colonial era. Yeah. Well, not early, I guess, but you know, the colonial era. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful gun. We've got a Peter Reservoir rifle in the sale. Uh, I think some collectors refer to it as the ghost rifle based on the patch box uh, engraving. That one's really cool looking. Um, you can see like any of these ones I'm talking about that are in the next sale, you can see on our website at rockislandauction.com. The catalog's up online. So if anybody's interested, definitely check that out. And then we've got a pair of pistols by his son, Jacob Rezer. Um, he probably made them in uh, once he moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. So that's kind of cool to me being a guy from the Midwest. You know, a lot of times you think about the high end American muzzleloaders. They're, you know, people like Pennsylvania and Virginia and you know, yeah. out here. Unless you get to Hawk and Rifles, of course, then you're right. Thinking, then you're thinking my neck of the woods a little more. But um, so those ones are really cool. Um, you know, Kentucky pistols in general don't come for sale very often. We don't get a ton of them. And this collection that we've got has, there's several pairs in this sale. And pairs themselves are also very rare. You know, you might see one pistol here and there, but you don't very often see like a matched pair that remained together, you know, for hundreds of years in high condition. And those ones, again, they're like relatively plain, but they've got some nice little silver accents and the shaping is just beautiful. The stocks are awesome. So those are really high on my list of the stuff that we've got currently. I'm trying to think of some of their stuff past. We had, um, are you familiar with the Seth Kinman mountain rifle? No, I'm not. So Seth Kinman was this like, larger than life some people would argue with me if i call him a mountain man but he was basically a mountain man he lived in the humboldt mountains out in california um there's a lot of famous pictures of him he like was one of those classic guys that would tell like tall tales about the frontier and whatnot okay well he had this really um old kentucky rifle that according to his tall tales the barrel was off of a rifle used at the battle of new orleans and then he like damaged the stock when a bear attacked him in California. <laughs> so he restocked it. And this thing is, I mean, it's like cracked and repaired and it, it just looks like it's been through hell and back multiple times, which if you read about his life, even without his embellishments, his life was pretty crazy. Um, he was the one who made a bunch of like elk antler chairs 
and gave okay. him like presents and stuff like that. If you look him up, there's all kinds of fun, cool photos of him in this rifle. I'm looking at the Rock Island website now, and you're. Uh, description of it being busted up uh, just to give the listeners a little input here until they can look at the picture is the basically the end of the stock seems to be attached with twisted wire to the barrel <laughs> or string I can't tell and it's cool there's so many pictures of him with that gun that if you actually yeah. look at it, you can see that over time the stock kind of gets damaged and changes that's um, so cool and that's one of those guns that, like, I actually knew about that gun a lot before it came in. I never thought, I never really thought about it coming into Rock Island before. And when it first came in the door and I saw it over, like, on the rack, I just assumed that somebody built a really cool reproduction of it. You know, some really talented modern gun maker built an awesome reproduction of that rifle because I never imagined it still existed. Yeah. And then when I found out, I you know, started looking at it, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's the real one. And then, you know, it's one of those guns that, again, like, it's not the most expensive rifle in the world by any means, but it's like, just totally cool. And the story with it, I mean, he carried it in one of Abraham Lincoln's funeral parades. Um, just, uh, it's crazy. He, by no means was Seth Kinman a good person, <laughs> but that's still cool. Like, I don't condone what he did, but like, that doesn't make it not a really fascinating, important historical firearm. Exactly. You know, these are historical artifacts from a time and a place. And to me, they're kind of like, you know, windows into the past where you can kind of, you, know, you can look at something like an antique Kentucky rifle, especially, and you can see like, you know, the running deer rifles got like, it's a folk card in it. And like, okay, yeah. well, why is it this caliber? Why do, what might they've been hunting? And that's why they needed this ca- particular caliber, you know, things like that. What, why are they different than, you know, German Jaeger rifles? Why did we change them? You know, you, you can get into like the history of them just from looking at the object without even considering everything else. But Right. I think loaders. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I could go on about all that kind of stuff way too long with any category of firearms. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say I think muzzleloaders are an interesting um, kind of bridge because we're so far removed from them historically. You know, there's been so much innovation, and, and firearms has changed so much over those generations that the idea of the single shot, while albeit the, they were used for some very historically bad things, looking back on them now, um, they they can f- seem or feel a little less, um, you know, sharp to, to contemporary people when looking at them. I'm just looking at the pictures of Seth Kinman here sitting in his buckskins with this rifle. I mean, you might see a few people that kind of look like him you know, out and about, depending on where you're at in the country and, and how many rendezvous you go to a year. Yeah, but, you might see him at a rendezvous or a muzzleloading show, but... <laughs> yes, <laughs> but your average person's not going to see a Seth Kinman lookalike, and it's just... I can only imagine what it's like to hold something like that. And just, I just love that about muzzleloading, is you can pick up an original muzzleloader and just wonder infinitely about where it came from and what it did. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's cool about those Hamilton pistols is that we actually know more of that. We often don't know anything about where a muzzleloader went after right. it was made, especially American muzzleloaders. I mean, a lot of these really high-end Kentucky rifles and the, the Kentucky pistols and stuff, we know nothing other than this guy made it. He was active in this time period. You might be able to narrow it down a little more to a specific range of years based on some characteristics. But you don't. you very rarely get to know who owned them and when they used them and where they used them and what events they were involved in. Um, but with that one, we know they were given to Alexander Hamilton during the American revolution. 
he could have very well carried him at Yorktown. Right. Uh, if nothing else, they were certainly with him during portions of the war. Um, but most of the time we don't get to know that. So instead we get to do like what you were saying, we get to hold them and think about like, you know, where has this thing been? What might it have done? And, you know, I think it's easy to think about, especially nowadays, people think about, you know, American history and we often get into all the, all the negatives, but, you know, throughout most of history, most people are just people trying to live lives. And most people that owned firearms, just like they do now and just like they did then, were just good people trying to make a living. You know, back then a gun was more than ever just a tool. It was part of what you needed to, you know, especially if you live in the frontier, you needed it to, you know, maybe hunt some deer to keep your family fed. Yeah. Um, so I think One it's easy the... to people to set that aside sometimes and get into, oh, yeah, you know, we, the Indian Wars, which are appalling. Um, but that's not the only thing that happened. Right. One of the most favorite things that I have in my family is my great, great grandfather's yeah. percussion long rifle from Northern Indiana. It was made like two counties over and it stayed here through its entire life. And he, he was just kind of a nobody, you know, he's a local farmer. He had a muzzleloader. That's what he hunted with. And, and that's what they used. And I mean, he's just a, just a person. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool though, to have a family heirloom that goes that far back. Yes. And, it's and it's a muzzleloader. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my own personal interest in it really enhanced. I mean, it's real beat up. I'll, um, I'll send you some pictures of it. Just, you might get a kick out of it. It's real plain, but it's just neat yeah. knowing it was made here and it stayed here and, and we still have it. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool to see stuff that does like even beyond family connections. It's kind of cool to see how many things did stay, you know, just like people within a short, short radius of where they were created. Yeah. Yeah, not everything went manifest destiny, you know, out to the West Coast and the gold rush and things. Yeah, yeah, and then we we often jump to that, you know, like, oh, yeah. it was made in the 1840s. I must have gone to the gold rush. It's like, no, there was a lot of cool stuff going on all over the country. Yeah. I mean, that is cool. The gold rush is definitely cool. You know, when you see, like, Henry Derringers and stuff that can be connected to, to the gold rush or some of the rifles that went out west and stuff, I mean, they're absolutely fascinating. But it's also cool to see, I think, sometimes the – lesser appreciated but still really cool guns that were like from the northeast you know there's a lot of really cool new york target rifles for example and they're not big bore guns they're smaller bore target guns and they can be beautifully crafted um and you know i think that's one of the cool things with american muzzle loaders too is it's such a varied field yes yeah Uh, even when people talk about like kentucky rifles or you know the american long rifle whichever term you want to use and it's like that's not one thing Right. <laughs> it's its own. Yeah. It's like saying a dog is just a dog, you know, when there's yeah. just tons of them. Yeah. And to people that own those dogs or, or have those dogs as the members of their family, like that's not just a dog. That's, you know, like we have a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. She's a cabbie. <laughs> she's, like, she's also my dog. She's my father, right. whatever you want to call it. But like, yeah, like I think guns are definitely that way. I learned that, um, like I started back in 2014 and I want to say in 2015, we had this really nice collection of all antique American long rifles called the the Piedmont collection. I don't remember how many guns were in it, but it was a massive collection of, of antique muzzle letters. I mean, you had guns by Armstrong and Schreyer and Dicker. And I mean, just like all the masters that you could think of from like Pennsylvania. And that was one of the things like I knew about this stuff then. And I was familiar with it, but I hadn't had the opportunity to like dive into it. 
that long. You know, usually you get one or two at a time. And you'll right. dive into that gun and you'll dive into the school that, that gun's from and learn about it and you know, kind of share that with the public when we when we catalog it or if we do a video about it or something like that. But with that collection, I was able to look at a whole range of guns all at once and really see like just how varied the American long rifle is. You know, it's not one gun. And a lot of them aren't even rifles. That's the other thing people run into. It's like yeah. a lot of like one of my favorite ones from that one was a George Schreyer, you know, smooth rifle or buck and ball gun or whatever you want to call it, you know, a smooth board built like a rifle yep. to have a rattlesnake patch box design, oh. which I, you know, I'm really interrupted. Like I said before, like I could have gone into biology. Right. Uh, so like occasionally I get to mix muzzleloaders and reptiles and that drives me nuts. I get super excited then. <laughs> uh, like last year we had a pair of um, Brune of Paris exhibition pistols that sold for like $375,000 or something like that. Just super over the top decoration from like muzzle to pommel cap. The whole thing was just absolutely gorgeous and decorated, you know, for like probably displayed at a World's Fair. I don't remember if that pair was documented for sure as being at a World's Fair or not. I know several other pairs that we had in that sale were, um, but they were unusual because they had like lizards and snakes as part of the decoration. Oh, that's cool. And since I'm into that kind of stuff, like combining a really cool muzzleloader with lizards and snakes, I was like, Losing my mind when I was writing that description, I guess. <laughs> I was like trying to figure out what kind of lizard was on the on the pommel, and were you able to identify it? Yeah, if I remember right, I think it was a green amoeba. Okay. Which is because uh, it was so detailed, like the engraving was so good. You know, it wasn't like a generic looking lizard. Like you could tell they had engraved it based on a specific lizard. Huh. Um, knowing firearms engravers in the past and having studied them a little bit, like I'm sure they probably used, you know, an etching from a book or something like that. It might've been right. from a natural book or, you know, I'm sure he had something like that. They based that engraving on, and that's a species that's from, I believe they live in Southern France. And since it was a French gun and kind of looking into what lizards lived in France, I'm pretty sure that was the species I kind of narrowed it down to. Hmm. In one of it was super cool. <laughs> yeah. In one of the um, Madison Grant books, that's the name of the author, um, about original bags and horns, there's a there's a neat horn with a snake coiled around it. But there's in that same book, there's another horn where they're like drawn or, or scrimshawed really into the horn is this possum. And there's this story of this young <laughs> boy going and hunting this possum. And it's just, <laughs> it's just a neat little piece of history. It's not really reptile related, but it just <laughs> makes me laugh when I think about it but uh, yeah that's cool just kind of a little side note there <laughs> but it's that kind of uh, we've talked about it a ton here um and I, I don't want to keep you too long but to wrap up you know just the neat the neatness of muzzleloading and, and firearms and how it relates to the normal person i think is a theme that anybody can get behind yeah i think that's one of the things like you were saying before about how muzzleloaders sometimes are more approachable and i think sometimes the fact that they come with those like like little I don't, know, I don't want to call them cute, but like just kind of fun little stories about, you know, like a boy hunting a possum. Like, yeah, that's not threatening to anybody. It's just a cool sounding, fun little story. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, love, I love all the little symbolism that you can find in, in muzzleloaders and kind of exploring, you know, why people do it. You know, like we've talked almost exclusively about uh, antique muzzleloaders, but, you know, a lot of the modern guys that are building you know, contemporary muzzleloaders kind of both use a lot of the antique guns for inspiration and whatnot, but they also kind of work some of their own 
life history essentially into their own builds. Yes. Or their, you know, their client might tell them, hey, I want to incorporate this into the design because this means something to me. So like that tradition's kind of been carried on, you know, for generations because we've never really stopped building muzzle loaders in this country. You know, it's kind of been part of our heritage. Yeah. It just keeps going. Yeah. And I hope it keeps going. I mean, like, that's one of the things, like, I obviously get really, really excited to see a really nice antique gun. Um, like the you know, like Campbellton's pistols, or we had a really really fancy um, Hawken rifle in our, one of our recent sales, or even just a plain Hawken rifle is really cool to see, just because they're rare. Yeah. Uh, but like, when a really nice modern made one comes in, like that excites me too. Yeah. Have, we had we've got some guns by like Judson Brennan and like oh. Mike Brooks. We've had a few Herschel House guns. Mm-hmm. We had like a. We had a collection of guns that all came from, are you familiar with uh, Alvin A. White, the master engraver? Mm-hmm. We had a bunch of stuff from him that came in, and there was one gun in that collection that I've been like kicking myself for not having bought ever since. That was, uh, he built a, uh, a long rifle using cherry cut from a blank from a tree that grew up, that was, that like got, like, got blown over in a storm by his childhood home. Oh. It was like this deeply personal gun of his. But like in and of itself, not something tremendously expensive or valuable. Um, valuable like historically and valuable, I'm sure to have ever bought it. And it should mm-hmm. be. But yeah. like, you know, not, a, not an Alexander Hamilton pistol kind <laughs> of. Um, I just really love that piece. I, you know, still wish I had picked it up at the time. I think we all but have a, a growing list of, of wish we had when it comes well, to. <laughs> I'm notorious with that though. Like, like I'm in the hunt right now for a 45 caliber flintlock pistol. Mm. And part of the reason I'm in the hunt for it is because like multiple of them have come up for sale and I've been like thinking about it and it's gone yeah. before you, you know, before I can jump on it, somebody else has got it. And it's like, Oh, uh, but you know, that's part of the fun too, especially when it yeah. comes to collecting and the hunt and the, the camaraderie of dealing with all the people in the culture. And I don't know. That's one of the cool things. Like if you ever, if you ever have the chance to come out to one of our, one of our auctions, especially like our premiere auctions, we set up um, all the guns in the sale are in the preview hall, all set up kind of like a walkthrough museum that you can walk through and see everything. Okay. Uh, you can handle most of this stuff. Um, you know, like the Hamilton pistols will be on display. Obviously, they'll be a little more guarded than most of the other <laughs> items. Uh, but, you know, a lot of, well, a lot of muzzleloaders that, you know, people can come and look at and they can physically hold and they can see them. And if they want to ask people questions here, they can ask questions or whatnot. But one of the cool things about that, those events, aside from just obviously having everything on display, and for us, it's obviously, you know, months and months of work brought to fruition to finally, like, bring them to public sale. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really rewarding for us. But it's really cool just to see, like, all the people that come out and seeing everybody talk and, like, I mean, it's just like a, I mean, it's just like a gun show to some degree, except for it's a little more personal. Super (laughs) nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just really, I don't know, to me, it's always a lot of fun to, to see clients, especially if, you know, some of the people that I've got to know over the years working here and, and also meeting new people all the time. You just never, you never know. And there's just so much variety and it's been really cool to see in recent years, we've seen more young people starting to show up and more young people being interested in muzzleloaders, which is something I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think. I've said it a lot and I think people are probably sick of hearing it, but I think we're seeing a, a interest in muzzleloading right now that could rival the bicentennial. 
with just the sheer, the lack of supplies and the, the long shipping times and talking to the businesses that are supplying things, they just can't keep up. And I think we're going to look back on this time as really crucial and really beneficial to muzzleloading. Oh, yeah. I think it's a really important period. I mean, you and me are by far like young guys to this yes. <laughs> to the muzzleloading group for sure. You know, when people find out how young I am when I tell them what I do. They're always like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah. And they're excited about it usually a lot of times, especially if they're older guys that have you know, cool collections and stuff they're going to want to sell off to future generations. But yeah, I mean like the guys that I shoot with and shoot muzzleloaders with, um, all of us are under 40 and most of us are under 30. I think yeah. I'm over 30, I'm over 30, but um, <laughs> I think both of my other two main muzzleloading buddies are both in their late twenties, I believe. Um, so, which is awesome. And everybody we introduce them to, you know, I think that's one thing as, people that collect and shoot and are into muzzleloaders that we've kind of got a responsibility to is to, you know, show more people what it's all about. And too often, I think people have preconceived notions that, Oh, you know, muzzleloading's a pain in the butt to do. It takes forever to load. You got to clean them. <laughs> there's all these, these like, like even in the gun community, there's a lot of like sometimes negative attitudes about shooting muzzleloaders that I think when you show somebody what it's all about, they forget all of that. Yeah. I think if you can get a muzzleloader in somebody's hand, you're, it sells itself. Yeah. yeah especially if you get like a, a really nicely built one that also looks really cool. Yep. I mean, affordable ones are also great just in terms of getting them in people's hands, period. But, you know, like Brian being able to hand somebody his Kibler that he finished really nicely and somebody being able to look at it and be like, you made this? And then he's like, yeah, and it's based on a design from you know, the 18th century. And you can shoot it right now with a piece of rock and yeah. <laughs> a big bang and a big cloud of smoke. And it's, and you can, you know, seeing people seeing like gun people being able to see that, like, you know, that gun goes off every time. Yeah. And, and people always think, Oh, muzzle, you know, flintlocks misfire all the time. It's like, none of they're no. done well. Yeah. Uh, people have this mis those, those preconceived notions that like when you bust through and they're like, Oh wait, these things are actually really cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got yeah. an abused, really abused Thompson Center Hawken from the 70s. Yeah, it, it might not go off, but if you've got one that's been cared for, oof, it's every time you're going to smile. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's just, and then like percussion guns are obviously even, generally speaking, even less um, problematic for most people, but yeah, I mean, like a, a good flint lock's going to go off. Um, and yeah, it's, it's tons of fun. Is there anything... Um, that you want to, you know, promote or, or give a shout out to, I think everybody kind of knows the rock Island name, but if there's anything else that you'd like to include with the episode here, I can add this in. And Yeah. Um, yeah I, I don't think I could shout out to everybody that I should shout out to here. Because, <laughs> I mean, I've obviously called out a few of my describe buddies that I, that I muzzle load with. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole team here is really cool. Rock Island auction is definitely like a big family which has been really cool. That was one of the things, you know, when I first came on, I didn't know anybody here. and It was kind of intimidating, but you really quickly realize that this place is run like a big family. Everybody's kind of taking care of each other. And the same thing goes for our clients that we get to know really well. You know, it's seeing it through the pandemic, which I know that's kind of like a, a not very fun topic to talk about, but, you know, we just did, what did I say? Like $91.7 million last year, despite the pandemic. Yeah. Um, we were lucky. We were fortunate to be classified as like a essential business as a firearms dealer. Um, so we were able to stay open, but 
you know, everybody worked together to make that a reality. And that's really cool. And Kevin Hogan, our, our company president, like, you know, you have to give him a lot of credit for, for managing this ship through that storm. Yeah. But, you know, we're not still, it's still not over for everybody, but you know, yeah. we're kind of seeing, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing, seeing a softer seas ahead, so to speak. Um, and the rest of the management team and, and down to the individual people that are here, you know, um, I couldn't have done it without them. They were, they worked great with me. Um, I had a daughter, my daughter was born in June during all this. So that oh, added wow. a whole, whole other complication to my life this year. And, and yet I still got to work with all this, you know, absolutely amazing muzzleloaders and other antique firearms throughout that because of the way they run things here and the way we're, we're able to just keep trucking forward. I mean, nothing really, nothing stops this company. That's great. Yeah, I mean, if anybody's interested in our, our entire catalog, you can see both like just a digital version where you can just see like the individual lots and you can search them and you can see the individual descriptions and there's all the photos and whatnot. You can look at that version, like a regular digital catalog kind of online on our website at rockislandauction.com. You can also see the actual print catalog is online in like a flipbook format, which is really cool to see because you kind of get to see all the page layouts with the really artistic shots and like how they kind of incorporate the history surrounding those guns into the catalog. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely encourage anybody that's interested in this stuff to go check all that out. And then we've got, you know, we do videos and, and blogs and you'll see stuff on our social media. Everything's just underneath Rock Island Auction Company, um, including the Hamilton Pistols. If somebody wants to see more about the Hamilton Pistols, our uh, social media team and some of the videographers we deal with um, put together a beautiful, wonderful video on those pistols. It both shows all their beauty, talks about their history, talks about the provenance, kind of gives you a really nice big overview on them. Um, so I would definitely recommend people check that out because this is, as we talked about earlier, this is a rare opportunity for somebody to actually get to see these things. Yeah. And I certainly count myself to be very fortunate to get to handle them and get to work with them and get to help catalog them and, you know, ultimately see them hopefully set a, a very significant new world record. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm gonna I'm gonna be watching with anticipation. Uh, forget uh, forget whatever sport is in season right now. I'm gonna be watching that auction. <laughs> yeah, and you can watch. There's, we have a live stream of the auction through our website. Okay, fantastic. You can actually, you can actually physically watch, you know, the auctioneers and uh, see what's going on. Which is, you know, I'm guessing Kevin will be the one on the podium as the auctioneer during that item. He likes to definitely get involved in the big ones. Uh, <laughs> he like. You know, like I talked about how everybody here has a passion for it. Kevin absolutely has a passion for this stuff. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the really big stuff, obviously that gets you gets you going even more. But um, uh, it's a lot of fun. The auctions are, are entertaining. There's definitely people that come here to bid on, you know, three or four lots, but they stay all weekend just to see what's going on. We'd like to thank Seth working with us and scheduling a time here to come onto the show and talk about some of the neat muzzleloaders that they have and some of the stories behind Seth's own interest in muzzleloading. And now we know there's a lot of people at Rock Island who also enjoy muzzleloading. And that's pretty cool, really. I mean, <laughs> it's it's neat to know that the people handling and writing and and auctioning and working with these pieces are passionate about it, too. I think that's just super cool. 
We'll have links down in the show notes to all the Rock Island information for you. I imagine that most of you listening have heard of them before and, and know what's up there. But if you get the chance, check out some of the great pictures and videos they have of some of their most exquisite pieces. I looked at the auction after talking with Seth last night, and there are some really neat muzzleloaders in there. The Hamilton pistols really kind of take the cake, I think, for this auction. But there's some other neat, you know, rather affordable options in there coming up for this May auction of some nice original pieces and some contemporary pieces as well. So check that out. We'll have a link to that down in the show notes below. I'd like to thank everybody so much for listening. As always, you can support what we do here at Muzzle Blast and support the show at nmlra.org. You can join and become an NMLRA member for as little as $3 a month, and that lets us know to keep the, all of this going and uh, and just continue supporting the muzzleloading community like we have been since 1933. This marks the official end of season one of the Muzzle Blast podcast. I'd just like to thank everybody for listening over the past, I think now looking at it, probably about a year and a half of the show. Uh, we got to nearly 50 episodes here, and... Uh, it's just really exciting to be this far in and, and to have so much passion and be talking to so many great people about muzzleloading. As always, thank you so much for listening and keep your powder dry.